Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Can somebody say overcome? Come on, say overcome. You know, God is a faithful God, is he not? He's an amazing, amazing God. And we're glad that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go to the book of Joshua. Joshua is the sixth book in the Bible. I want to take the opportunity to welcome those that are streaming live. So grateful, so thankful for the opportunity uh, through live stream to be able to minister right into your home. Um, We are now concluding the seven-day fast. Some of you have been on a liquid fast. You get morsels today. You get food today. And uh, it's been an awesome, awesome, amazing seven days. Uh, how many of you are all-night prayer with us? Come on, you all-night prayer. So let me tell you something. This past Friday night, something very unique happened in this room. Um, for those of us who were there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it was just a powerful time in God's presence. Um, not only mass cleansing and confession of sin... But uh, I feel like in the six years that we've been here since relaunch, um, there was a spirit of praise that broke through in this congregation and those that were gathered uh, in the middle of the night around 2 o'clock. And I would say this room became a labor and delivery room. And people began to birth. I'm not talking about just a few voices. I'm talking about an ocean of voices gathered together in great intercession and praise and thanksgiving to God. And uh, I don't know if you're with me this morning. Are you with me this morning? I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm not, I'm not here to teach this morning. So I want to forewarn you. Uh, teaching is my default mechanism. Teaching's what I do. God has stirred me on this fast in some areas of real clarity for the direction of our church, and particularly as it relates to engaging the Word of God, responding to the Word of God, and becoming a community of faith that believes and trusts and confesses God's Word. Amen? And so this morning, if you have a Bible, Joshua chapter 1 is where we'll turn. This is week number 3 of our series, Overcome. And uh, again, I consider it such a privilege to be able to share God's Word among us. Joshua chapter 1. One of my favorite movies in the 1980s was a a movie called Hoosiers. Anybody remember the movie Hoosiers? For what it's worth, I think when we get to heaven, we'll learn that Western culture reached its pinnacle in the 1980s, right? I mean, you have Chicago, you have REO Speedwagon, you have Run DMC, you have Whitney Houston, there has never been a better voice. You have Chuck Norris, you have Bon Jovi 1.0, you have Top Gun, right? You have The Empire Strikes Back, you have the Indiana Jones trilogy. I mean, the 1980s is where it peaked. Now, I know not everyone agrees with me in here, but that's just because you're not yet filled with the Spirit, okay? And when you get filled with the Spirit, you will... No, I'm just kidding, but... Hoosiers came out in in 1986. I was only one year old, and um, although I couldn't watch it at one year old, right? I did watch it many years, and then I watched it year after year after year. Even in our middle school basketball team, we would watch it before every... Uh, basketball tournament, you know, at the beginning of season, middle of season, the end of the season. In the movie, which is, by the way, based on a true story, you have this little backwoods high school team from Indiana, right? They overcome these incredible odds and they make it to the state championship for Indiana. Well, when they get to the state championship, they're facing a school that is 10 times bigger than they are. I mean, just a monster school. And they're before this humongous crowd in Indiana University's main arena, 
which is like 100 times bigger, right, than anything they've ever played in before, especially in high school. And Gene Hackman, who plays the coach, he walks the team into the arena. You remember the scene? And when he gets them into the arena the day before the game, he can sense that they're overwhelmed with how big the arena is, right? So he gets out a tape measure, and he begins to make one of them measure how tall the rim is. And the the rim, I'll show you a picture, is indeed 10 feet. The distance from the free throw line, he makes them measure it. It's actually 15 feet. It's the standard. It's, in fact, the same goals that they play on in their high school. It's the same height. It's the same distance from the free throw line. And the point is, he said, the basics never change. He looks at his young man and he says, the keys to winning is to keep doing the basics well, to keep on being faithful in the basics. And that's honestly the point of the opening scenes of the book of Joshua. God's people are about to go into a whole new arena. They're about to go into the promised land that was promised to God, the God of, or by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. But the basics of what it means to walk with God never change. And that's what God is telling them in Joshua 1. Not in that day and not in our day either. See, church, in your life, you're going to go through multiple seasons where maybe you're in a new one now, where being a student, or for some of you, getting married, or for some of you, having kids. For others of you, it's building a career. Maybe it's being single again. Maybe it's retiring. Maybe it's becoming, you know, somebody that has notoriety in your field. Maybe it's going into ministry. Listen, the arenas change, but none of the basics ever change. And sometimes you feel like the fear and the pressure will swallow you up and you are asking, do I have what it takes, right? Can I really make it in this season? And God takes out the tape measure and he says, see, the basics are the same. The basics are never changing. In fact, this is how Joshua begins. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, which doesn't mean he didn't have any parents. Nun is a capital N, N-U-N. His dad's name was Nun, Moses' assistant. Verse 2, God says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. A little context here. Joshua hadn't had been one of the 12 spies sent out to spy in the land when they were on the other side of the river, right, in the desert. Two of those spies came back to Moses and the rest of the camp and said, yeah, these giants are big, but our God is bigger. And 10 of them come back and say, we look but like grasshoppers in their sight. The other 10 said, there's no way we can do it. Now, we don't remember any of them, do we? We don't name any of those 10 spies, do we? Anybody know their first names? No. Why? Because, number one, we don't remember cowards, We don't remember cowards. We don't talk about cowards. We don't communicate in the history and redemption of God people that are cowards too because they have strange names. One of their names was Shofat. Shofat, folks. Parents, don't name your kids Shofat. If you name your kids Shofat, it's not going to go show well for them in high school, okay? That's not going to work. Shofat is going to prom by himself, all right? He's hanging out with Shophat alone. Verse 3, every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I've given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Why? Because you're awesome, Joshua? Because you're amazing? Nope. Just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you, God says. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Now, some of you, all your life, you've been told to look for confidence in the wrong place. You grew up in a Western world that 
told you by your parents and by your teachers and your faculty members. You've been told to look within. You are confident. Look yourself in the mirror. Say you're special, right? You are one of a kind. You're a snowflake. You're a rainbow. You are Skittles. You're irreplaceable. But the reality is, church, you're really not. We are just but glorified mud balls, aren't we? Unless the Spirit of God is within us. Listen to me, confidence doesn't come from nasal gazing within. Confidence doesn't come from looking with what's inside of you. Confidence comes from seeing the one standing beside you. That's where real confidence comes. And he goes on in verse 7, he says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. He said, Don't turn it from the right hand or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Now, Joshua's first major challenge is taking the land of Jericho. And it's not easy because Jericho is the most fortified city in the world. Its walls are so thick that you could ride two chariots on top of them horizontally. So this is like an interstate. This is like a main highway. The scene here in Joshua chapter 5 takes place on the eve of that battle. And as you can imagine, Joshua's pretty nervous. War is imminent. This is Joshua's kind of true first moment of leadership. And if you're in chapter 5 with me, he's having a little trouble sleeping. You can imagine. He goes out in the middle of the night and he starts taking a walk. It's late at night, he's praying, I don't know, dipping tobacco, playing Angry Birds on his phone, whatever he does to unwind. And here he is walking, right? And he's walking, and I want you to notice what happens. Verse 13, when Joshua was was by Jericho. Now, the way that's written in Hebrew indicates that Joshua snuck right up next to the walls. It literally, the Hebrew translation here was when he was at Jericho. He lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Hey, man, are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? Now we can first just acknowledge Joshua is a man's man. I mean, he's right by the enemy wall and he encounters a strange man in the dark. The man's got his sword drawn and a lesser man like me would have hightailed it out of there. But not this man. Joshua, he approaches him. He goes right over and he challenges this guy to a fight and he says to him, Okay, He says to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? I mean, come on now. I mean, this is, this is major confidence. You can write this down in your Bible. Joshua is the truer and better Chuck Norris. Okay, this is, a, this is a man's man. Some people wear Superman pajamas. Superman wear Joshua pajamas. Okay, Death once had a near Joshua experience. All right? This is a, this is a man's man. He says, are you for us? Are you for our adversaries? And look what the man says. No. What? No. Did, did Joshua ask him a yes or no question? Did he say yes or no? Hey, what's your name? No. No, no, no. No means you're asking the wrong question, Joshua. I'm not going to answer that question. He says no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. The question is not, am I on your side, Joshua? The question is, are you on my side, Joshua? I'm not coming as the lieutenant here, says this strange man. I'm coming as the general. And what does Joshua do? He fell with his face to the earth and worshiped and said him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals. Doesn't it sound like Moses? For the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now you say, Craig, who is it exactly that Joshua is staying in front of? You say, an angel. It cannot be an angel. Because it says Joshua worshipped this man, and whoever he worshipped did not stop him. 
Angels never let you worship them. In Revelation 22, when John falls down to worship the angel, the angels get highly upset and say, what in the world are you doing? I'm a creature like you. Stand up, worship God. Joshua, however, falls on his face to this being, and he doesn't say, whoa, Josh, get up. He says, thank you for worshiping me. This is what theologians call a Christophany. A Christophany is an Old Testament pre-nativity appearance of Jesus. Before Jesus comes to the earth in the incarnation or in taking on human flesh, he comes as Jesus, as this man, capital N, and notice it's so amazing. This is before he's born in the major, but listen, he's always been the commander of the Lord's armies. He's always been the commander. He's always been the general. And what he demands from Joshua is surrender because listen, this battle that Joshua's going to fight, he's going to need Jesus' help with. This is a battle that, that Joshua can't do on his own. He's going to need to overcome because he is next to God. Now, we skip this part, but after they crossed the Jordan, like Pastor Chad preached a few weeks ago, as, as they were there, lay exposed before Jericho, God had Joshua circumcise all the males. And that left them really, really vulnerable. Why would you put your soldiers in a very vulnerable position right before in front of the face of the enemy to show that army that safety and victory did not belong to them? The battle was the Lord's, not their own. And this is God from the outset of the promised land. But I want you to look what happens in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. God speaks and God declares, Haven't I commanded you, Joshua? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Watch this. Don't be dismayed. Everybody say dismayed. For Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. I want to talk this morning about that word dismayed. Dismayed. When you follow God long enough, the temptation to quit can be very real at times. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The temptation to quit on whatever it is that God's called you to can become real. Sometimes, In light of, church, the response of the challenges we've faced these last few years, I want to preach to you today, but I want to preach in a specific way. My aim is to preach all of us out of a disposition of melancholy this morning. <laughs> so I'm going to need you to get with me for the next few moments. I want to preach you out of a spirit of sadness this morning. I get it. I get it. I get it. I know the world we've been in. I know how it tends to seep into every crevice of our soul. But my aim is to preach us out of melancholy this morning. To get us to focus our attention on a God who is able to lift your head. To get us to look beyond our present circumstances to a God who is more than enough. Psalm 42, if you have a Bible there, I want you to look with me now at Psalm 42. This is a beautiful psalm in the second Psalter, what we call the second book of Psalms. And I want you to listen at how this psalmist begins to declare the son of Korah about this story in Joshua. He begins to communicate about Joshua's God. He begins to communicate about the faithfulness of God in the land of the Jordan. I'm reading from Psalm 42 beginning in verse 1. He said, as the deer, everybody say deer, pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? For my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? 
I remember these things and I pour out my soul within me for I used to go over with the multitude and walk to the house of God with a voice of joy and I used to do that. I used to have a voice of joy. I used to have a voice of thanksgiving, the psalmist said. A multitude celebrating a festival. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, Why, next slide, are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you restless within me? Wait for God, for I will again praise him with the help of his presence. My God, my soul is in despair within me, he says. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls unto deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and all your waves have passed over me. The Lord will send his goodness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, watch this. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering notice of my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? My enemies look at me and say, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? The psalmist declares, why are you restless within me? He speaks to himself, wait for God, for I will yet again praise him for the help of his presence, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? I like the old language. It says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God, for yet shall I praise Him. I've titled this message today, You Can't Give Up Now. You Can't Give Up Now. My children, church, are getting a little bit older now, so I try to be careful when using them as sermon illustrations. But I'll never forget a few years ago when we were living in Cleveland, Tennessee, we only had two at the time, and my little Marley, our little Marley, who is our social butterfly and was from the beginning, she was behind a little pulpit that my, their grandparents had gotten knocks, and we had a little pulpit upstairs in, our, in our, our, our loft area, and she was standing at the pulpit with a microphone attached to the little karaoke machine. And the pulpit, it, because she got a little in, into it, began to fall over. And it fell over in front of her. And about that same time, I got it on video on my iPhone. Knox goes over to her, right, our, our oldest, and he yanks the microphone from her hand. So not only is the pulpit fallen, the microphone's been ripped from her. Now, that sounds so trivial. I get it. But I want you to see her face in that moment. She, with her little blankie, her, we call Moe's, began to walk just slowly over off to the side. And that, that face began to curl and that... Face began to frown a little bit, and those big, beautiful blue eyes, you know our Marley, those big, beautiful blue eyes started to water, and tears began to fall. She was, she was sad. There comes a time in a child's life where when what you want, what you desire is threatened or taken from you, and it produces sadness. Another dear one that I've spoken to just recently has been overlooked for her promotion in her job two times in a row now. It's happened two times even in the last year and a half. And she's well-deserving, she's well-able, she's well-credentialed, she's well-talented. But because of the environment that she finds herself in, she's been overlooked. And I didn't know it at the time when we talked, but she has been shedding a lot of tears because she's been sad. How many Americans have died from COVID in the last 24 months? 
Now, just in America, we have 800,000 people. I don't know if you realize that or not. If we just go on the low estimate, that means right now, nowhere less than 15 to 20 million people out of our 300 plus million people are in a state right now where they have been clearly affected as family members have been lost from this cruel, cruel disease. We right now in American history are perhaps unmatched, maybe World War II's close, with almost 10 to 15% of an entire nation corporately grieving at the exact same time. People are sad. People are heavy. What, what about Winston Churchill, who once turned Britain into a mighty army to push back the Third Reich? He did all that he could to stand up against Hitler, but on some of his best days, Winston Churchill battled the lion of depression. He battled the lion of melancholy and sadness. What about Robin Williams who made all of us laugh, who took us to the heights of foolishness and took us to the heights of comedy and rejoiced our hearts and yet we didn't know behind all of that was a proposed, just a proposed joy because what gripped him most of the days of his life was deep melancholy, deep sadness, deep depression. Friends, it could be, listen, this morning, everyday run-of-the-mill kind of sadness that you face. Or sometimes it could be a chemical imbalance in the brain. Some of you, 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 it could be a hormonal shift that requires medicine. And we are here to applaud that. An intervention of science as God's gift unto you. Or maybe it could be a trauma that you went through that requires consistent counseling, consistent care. All I know as a pastor over the last two and a half years, as I've been meeting with person after person, talking on the phone with person after person, making prayer and haste, person after person, and people are sad. Melancholy is common. Whatever it is today, friends, I want to say to you that sadness is both personal and it's universal. Meaning it will get you at some point in your life. Yes, 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 yes. You keep living long enough and you don't have to make a schedule and make an appointment with sadness. It has one scheduled for you. In fact, probably several of them scheduled for you. Whatever it is that you face, you need to know that, yes, sadness is personal to you, but it's universal to everyone as well. This day was the last day a year ago exactly that Meredith would see her dad alive at our now 12-year-old's birthday party in that lobby. I get it. It's sadness. It's melancholy. It begins to feel very oppressive. And the psalmist in this Psalter knows very well what that feeling is like. It's both personal, yet it's universal. In the last two years, the New York Times even released and said, whenever we get through this, every American is going to need some kind of counseling. The uncertainty, the loss of a loved one, property being snatched from person after person, our kids under mandates at school, divorce rates at an all-time high. We honestly don't know what in the world is going on. And if after all of that, I had a friend tell me this week, you don't need counseling, you were crazy before this thing ever started. <laughs> right? You were, you were a little out there. There comes a point, listen friend, for all of us, that you and I battle sadness. Joshua was dismayed. He was dismayed. Let me also say, can I just so here as a sidebar, it is cruel and insensitive to look at someone wrestling with sadness and tell them to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. That is cruel and insensitive. It's inappropriate to look at someone who is in melancholic and tell them, get over it. Get up out of it. 
We've done a lot of damage. Can we just admit that this morning, church? We've done a lot of damage telling people just to be glad. Listen, there are times in this life where you just can't be glad. There are times in this life where you just got to process whatever it is you've been going through. But I am grateful. Can I say it this morning? For Psalm 42 and 43. I am grateful for Joshua chapter 1 because I think Psalm 42 gives us a path to singing again. A path to overcoming the sadness. And it's my prayer that even by the end of this sermon today, maybe you're not singing, but I will promise you, if you keep holding on to what the psalmist declares in this psalm, one day you will start singing again. One day you will feel joy again. You will start to rejoice again because there is within these verses, listen to me, church, a prescription for the downcast. There is a prescription for the oppressed. There is a prescription for the sorrowful. To help pull you and me, to help pull us up out of the ditch, up out of the sorrow, up out of the pain and rejoice again. How many of you this morning, you want a joy that pandemics cannot steal? Come on. How many of you want a joy in the midst of this situation that people in outside some circumstances cannot snatch away? Do you want a gladness in your heart that that meets you in the morning even before you get up out of bed. That when you wake up in the morning, you have a disposition in your soul of gladness that this is the day, let us rejoice in it. Does anybody want to laugh again? Come on, church. Does anybody want to live a life full of the joy of the Lord being our strength? The first thing I need you to know this morning is that it's not you. See, sometimes when we, when we feel and face sadness or we face moments of difficulty and darkness... We like to think something's wrong with us. But the superscription of Psalm 42 tells us this is a mascal. Look at your Bible. M-A-S-K-I-L. Mascal means it's a teaching psalm by one of the sons of Korah. That's what your text says. Psalm 42 was written by a son of Korah. In other words, this is a worship leader writing this. This is not a novice Christian. This is not a novice follower. This is a seasoned follower of God. This is somebody who's been taught the rigors of serious theology. This is somebody who's gotten up on stage and led others in worship. This is someone who's walked with God. This is somebody who's a strong believer. This is somebody who's confident in God. But yet, they're still sad. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I've come to passages like this where I have been encouraged by the psalmist's discouragement. There have been times where I've taken strength from other people's weakness. Sometimes we like to tell people, if you aren't Christian enough, or if you were just a believer enough, if you would just believe the right things, you won't be sad. But that's not true, is it, church? Because Psalm 42 tells us that even the strongest of us get weak sometimes. Even the strongest of believers get weak sometimes. This is why, can I just go ahead and throw it out there to you? You all need to pray for me, too. This is why you need to pray for your pastors and your leaders. I know some of you expect me to show up every Sunday, every other Sunday, and give you a shot in the arm, and you come to church to get a word from God, and that's good, and you should. But when you come, you need to also remember sometimes that the church is like a hospital, and the doctor's in need of care sometimes as well. That we all, as the people of God, we need to understand and not look at someone who we think is strong and able and take it for granted. The day and age of our time is not for us to come in the body of Christ, and look at stronger leaders around us and take it for granted that they're always strong. We need to be praying for one another. We need to be lifting up one another. We need to be speaking words of life to one another. We need to be finding one another to encourage one another. Because even the strongest of us gets weak sometimes. 
There's nothing wrong with you. Listen, you feel sadness, there's nothing wrong with you. When you face challenges, there's nothing wrong with your relationship with God. You are no less of a believer because you face struggles in the life. Can I tell you what you are? You're human. You're human. Part of the plight of living in this flesh is that it gets out of whack sometimes. You live in this flesh long enough and all of a sudden your mind don't sit squarely on your shoulders some days. Your brain starts telling you weird things. Your mind doesn't feel stable like it once felt. The, the author is not a spiritual novice. The author is a believer. Now watch how the direction of the psalm turns. I love, church, the, the transparency of the psalms. Don't you love the transparency of the psalms? Because they meet the, the whole gamut of human emotion and human expression, don't they? I need you to be honest with me this morning, church. I need you to be honest. Sometimes when you walk with God, every word that comes out of your mouth is not a hallelujah. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Sometimes you work with God, walk with, sometimes the psalmist weep, and sometimes the psalmist laugh. Sometimes the psalmist pray, sometimes the psalmist cuss. They rejoice and they lament. Because life is like that, isn't it? Life has those moments where, listen, your hands are up in the air and life has those moments where someone said something to you the wrong way and you walk up to them and you say one more time. You say that one more time. Come on, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. You've been, to, you've, been, you've been out on the, literally, you've been out on the basketball court before, okay? And you said, hey, I know that person's scared of you and they want, but you, you talk to that person one more time. One more time. One more time. You, you know what I'm talking, anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. Okay, we got a church planter friend that's planting in Cartersville today. He's coaching his kids. He got literally teed up after 4,000 mailers went out to Bartow County this week. He got teed up in his kid's game yesterday, his nine-year-old game as a coach. And all these people know his face, right? Right there in the middle, of, he's teed up because he's taught. You know what I'm talking about? Those type of Christians. Sometimes you don't have every word coming out of your mouth that's in a great disposition, right? We rejoice and we lament. Some of y'all know this psalmist is both... Beverly Hills and Westside. You know what I mean? They're on both sides. Both the White House and the Drug House. Because that's what life is. Psalm 42 and 43 get us into what we call the second book of Psalms. Or the second book of Psalter. Now this is what we call in Psalm 42 the Eloistic Psalms. E-L-O-I-S-T-I-C. Eloistic. Because this is where the Psalms start getting dominated by the name for God, Elohim. Everybody say Elohim. You know, the, game, the name for God most dominantly used in the Psalms and the Old Testament is not Elohim. The name used by God in the Old Testament is Yahweh. Yahweh is actually a verb in Hebrew. It means to be. Because it's not that God was or it's not that God will be. It's that God always is. That's who Yahweh is. But the, Nelo, the name Elohim, it gets a broader focus in this book. And here's why. Because the name Elohim, church, harkens back to the name El Shaddai. And the name El Shaddai is the God who is Almighty. Everybody say Almighty. The name Elohim goes to El Shaddai, the God who is Almighty. Another way to say that is the, the many-breasted one, the God who is Almighty. We can say it this way, the God who rules and the God who super rules. We can say the God who leads and the God who super leads. You say, Craig, why do we get all these different names for God in the Bible? Well, it's not because God has a split personality. It's not because God's schizophrenic. 
It's because the human language is the poverty of speech. Let me go ahead and preach to you this morning, church. We don't have a vocabulary in any language that can adequately wrap its arms around the grandeur and the magnificence of our God. So the psalmist says, hey, I'm going to make a shift here for a moment, and I'm going to start using a different name for God in this section. He is the God who can do anything. When melancholy and with sadness becomes your best friend, you need to hearken back to El Shaddai, the God who is able to do anything. He's the God of all power, not just some power. And some of you say, maybe I don't recognize my need for a God with all power. Well, listen, church, we are always dealing with limited power, aren't we? I mean, think about it. Have you ever noticed that? The president right now can't get a spending budget passed. He has to compromise and give and take and barter. Why? Because even the most powerful office in the world has limited power. You see people freaking out because of different various bills right now in different various states. And now those bills are going to the Supreme Court to make a rule. But even the Supreme Court today can overturn rules they ratified 10 years ago because even the Supreme Court has limited power. You go to the doctor. Anybody ever had this aha moment at the doctor? You go to the doctor and you think that doctor is going to fix whatever's wrong with you. And that doctor may be an expert at Emory and practicing for 35 years. But when you leave and you get in your car, the light bulb goes off. They're just practicing. They got limited power. Limited power. And after you run into limited power over and over and over again, after you, in every season of life, in every sphere of life, ran into limited power again and again and again. You get to the point in life, church, where you need someone who has unlimited power. When we get to that place in life, what we call overcome is a God, El Shaddai, who has all power. You come to the point in your life, I've come to the point in my life where I need a one-stop shop, where I need someone who can fix everything. I need a God who is not limited by anyone or anything. And I've come to tell you today, you've made a good decision by showing up to this church on this Sunday. Because when we show up at this church on this Sunday, we come to the place where we meet the one who has all power. We meet the one who is almighty. We meet the one who is many-breasted and has no limited power. He has all power. Come on, church. He has the sun-raising power. He has the moon-blowing power. He has food-on-your-table power. Anybody wake up this morning and have a roof-on-your-head kind of power? I'm talking about clothes-on-your-kids' back kind of power. I'm talking about a joy in your soul, undeniable and full of glory kind of power. We're serving a God today and we're worshiping a God today who is unlimited in power. He is the God Almighty. He is El Shaddai. He is Elohim. And the psalmist says, Elohim, the God of all power. I must tell you, I did not come to church on this Sunday to worship God and a God with little power. I didn't get dressed on Sunday to come sing to a God who has just a little power. No, 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 no. I've come to worship the same God that Abraham called the Ancient of Days. 
I've come, I don't know about you this morning, but to worship a God, to get free and uninhibited, to worship the same God that Joshua literally marched in his name. The same God that caused those walls to fall flat. I've showed up to worship God this morning. The same God who Jeremiah said, listen, I was going to give up on God. I wasn't going to preach anymore. But all of a sudden, his word became like a fire that was shut up in my bones. I got dressed this morning to worship a God who has all power in his hand. I've come to tell you this morning, we serve a God with all power. All power. Now listen to me, listen to me. Your sadness and my sadness can turn to gladness when we see God as deliverer. You see God for who God is and your sadness can turn into gladness. Let me walk you through this text right quickly. You say, Craig, why is it then, preacher, that the people get sad? Why is it that, what is it that will make people sad? What is it that make people melancholic? I'm going to give you two reasons. This psalm is neatly arranged in two stanzas. It's actually three. Because Psalm 42 and 43 were originally one psalm. And what we've done in in the interpretation or breaking up of Scripture, the proliferation of translations, we've broken Psalm 42 and 43 into two psalms. They're one psalm. The same refrain is in both, both chapters. Here's the first reason people get sad. You ready? People get sad when they imagine that God goes absent. People get sad when they imagine that God goes absent. Look at the text says, Psalm 42. As the deer, come on, say deer. Pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you. He says, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. He said, my tears have been my food day and night. And they, who? The world says to me, where is God? Where is he? People get sad when they imagine that God goes missing. Some of y'all been there before? You've been there in life? I want to suggest to you and I that you and I from this Sunday on, we need to declare a new devotion this year. As the deer pants for soul, the water brooks, the scripture says, these streams of living water, so my soul, God, pants for you. When can I go and meet with the living God? Notice this, my soul longs after you. Now, I'm a deer hunter. I think most of you know that. I like deer, but I don't like just deer as magnificent creatures. I, I like to, or just to hunt those creatures. I like to study those creatures. I like to learn about those creatures. You've done it long enough. I've been doing it my whole life. You learn a thing or two or ten or a hundred about deer. Now, in 36 years of living, I've read a whole lot about deer. I've experienced a lot in deer hunting. I've discovered some amazing things about a deer. Did you know that deer have the highest sensory pickup of any other animal in the wild? Deer can smell you up to four football fields away if the wind's blowing right. Now, many people will say it's up to a mile. If there's corn or any kind of infusion of apple scent on the ground, they can, over a mile away, they can pick up on smell. They're equipped, as deer are, with the keen sense of awareness because they're constantly being hunted down. Now, I'm not just talking about being hunted down by guys with guns, but often just by other animals in the animal kingdom. So they have this awareness, look church, where they are always looking out for predators. And so what God has given them is he's equipped them with muscles to run really fast, to make it up heels very quickly, to make quick left and right turns. And the idea is that the deer is in constant danger, danger, but they are built. 
I'm trying not to pre- preach right here. The, these deer are built to be able to handle constant danger. They're, they're built and equipped by God to be able to handle it. And the psalmist understands something, church, that when a deer starts to feel danger, when a deer has a cursor, when something intersects a deer, what happens to the deer is it starts picking up running. But if you study deer enough, deer don't sweat too much. So when they have to cool down their body, they start panting. When I watch bucks chase does under my tree stand sometime, the, the, the doe will stop for a moment, and he's been chasing her for the last five hours all through the middle of the night across rivers around pine thickets and he'll stop and I watch his mouth open and he'll <sighs> he'll start panting in order to allow his body to calm down right to cool off because he doesn't sweat that much but when he breathes real fast it releases his own scent into the air which creates a trail by which other animals can find him but if it can get to water that's why they got to stay next to water if the deer can get to water and lower its head down in the water the water snatches away the scent and the predator cannot any longer find the prey and the psalmist says as the deer is looking for water I'm going to tell you this morning if you're in danger this morning if you're if you're panting a little bit if you'll just get to the water God says I'm able to cover you God says I'm able to keep you from the snare of the enemy if you can just get to some water he said as the deer pants for water so my soul pants after you is there anyone in here this morning that you've come in before and you came into church on a Sunday with the hounds of depression that were mocking you and you've got the pile of debris upon you and yet if you can just get to water if you can just get to Jesus the living water he'll begin to cover you he'll begin to strengthen you as the deer (sighs) pants pants for water isn't that our world today I walked through Woodstock this week and I heard I looked on the news this week and, and everybody's... <laughs> you, you, you drive through our world today and, and everybody's... Can't you hear them shooting each other in the streets? Can't you hear young people selling drugs one to another? Can't you hear people kicking back on liquor every weekend to try to get some moment of escape and coping mechanism? Can't you see the terror that's alive in people and terror and fear that's alive in their heart and in our community? People are. And they'll never find the water in the music we're making today. They're not going to find water in the Netflix binging we do today. They're not going to find water in trying to veg out on the couch today. They're not going to find water in the pleasures that they seek to try to cover or fill their time with. They will never find water there. But there is some water, church. There is clear water. And this is why our church, I'm going to tell you right now, I believe this wholeheartedly. I believe God gave me a prophetic word this past Friday night that I saw I saw in my mind's eye and the spirit of eye, the prophet Agabus coming up to the apostle Paul and he took a, a strap, a belt around him and he said, there's times of restriction coming for you, Paul. And I saw in my mind's eye I saw these ropes begin to unravel and snap and I heard the Lord say to me this is a place where God will expand and strengthen us I believe right now church I want you to if I could just get two or three on board with me just to give two or three with affinity to say it is time for us as a church to begin to uncover the water brook we need to begin to be loud and vocal and evangelistic to tell people there is some water that if you can get to water God can cover you if you can get to 
to water, God can strengthen you. If you can get to water, God can change your life. It is high time for us to stop being inhibited in our worship, stop being inhibited in our response to God, stop being inhibited in our own life with God. But you know what? We need to say to people in our city, we need to say to people in our workplaces, we need to say to people on our school campuses, you can get some water at the church of Jesus Christ. You can get some water in God's presence. We know, listen, we know where you can get some covering. We know where you can get water. And it's the church of the living God. Psalmist says, I'm after you, Lord. Now, now scholars suggest here that the psalmist is in exile. Now, this is not national exile. This is personal exile. So he's being pushed. This psalmist, the son of Kor, is pushed out to the fringes. And best we can discover when you study this passage is that they're under religious persecution. So they've had to go in hiding because of the circumstance that has forced them out, because of the evil that has come upon them. And so the people around them are saying, where's your God? Where is he? See, because when bad happens, isn't it amazing, church, how the world's thought theology only has one scape? The world's theology has one scape. It's when bad happens, they say, where is God? Have you ever noticed that? Drives me flipping crazy. People who've never been believers their whole life, when bad habits, they start talking, where's, where's God now? They never had a theology. I don't even know if they said the word God. But as soon as bad starts to happen, where is God now? When things go wrong, people start to fo- poke at you. And they start to say, well, if he's good and he's loving, where is he? Well, let's don't just prod at the world today. What about you? Some of you have asked that question, had not you? Maybe you've asked the question, God, where are you? And here's the reality. There is a feeling that accompanies God's nearness, and the psalmist is after that feeling. But the problem is, if you judge God's presence, listen, on that feeling, then when pressure comes and that pressure overwhelms that feeling, you'll be tempted to think that God has moved. You'll be tempted to think God is gone. But I want to suggest to you today that God is in the same place when you're sad as he is when you're glad. God ain't moved an inch. He's not moved at all. The presence of God, listen, does not always mean the absence of sadness. I want you to catch this now. I want you to catch this. If you feel sad, it does not mean that God is not there. God's presence does not always mean sadness's absence. God can be there, and you can be sad at the same time. But, and this is a big but, if you begin to ever, listen to me, I want you to hear me clearly. If in that sadness you for one iota begin to imagine a scenario in which God is not there, then depression's going to be your ultimate destination. Depression's going to be the inevitable result. Now listen, you can be sad, You can face melancholy as part of being human, but what you need to say in that sadness, what you need to do as a prophet of your own life, is you need to thank God that you're still with me. God, I thank you that you're still with me. God, I give you praise that your presence is... Listen, all throughout the scripture, we realize this truth, that God is most powerfully present even when he seems most apparently absent. God is present. And you can say, thank you, God, that you watched over me. Thank you that, God, you are faithful even when I am faithless. Can I preach to you this morning? 
Come here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Come over here. Come help preach the sermon. I want you to realize, you, 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 you three boys were thrown into the fiery furnace. Is that right? Yeah. And, and you guys refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar and his idol, didn't you? You, you said you're not going to do that, right? You're going to stay as even young teenagers who, who have made a decision not to defile themselves with the king's food and, uh, food and wine. And you're a person who, is, who, who, like Daniel, has stayed faithful in the midst of exile. And you were thrown into a fiery furnace. And when they were thrown in, the Bible says not even the hair on their head was singed. Is that what it says? I I thought all of you all knew what fire was. Anybody know what fire is? Fire burns you, does it not? I I opened the the stove yesterday, the oven yesterday, to take out a pizza for Knox's party, and I thought the whole thing had burned every little hair on my face, right? 400 degrees right there. I mean, fire is hot, right? I said that that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire and not a hair on their head was singed. You say, well, how in the world did that happen? Well, well, when they put three men in, Nebuchadnezzar stood over there and he started scratching his head a little bit and he said, you know, I I know I took Babylonian math. I know that I was pretty good in my standardized testing, but, but, but when I put three in, let me count them again. There's one, there's two, there's three, there's... Four. Oh, 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 hold on just a minute. Come over here. Come over here, Mr. Mr. Fireman. Come here. Uh, I put three men in, but let's count it. There is one. There is two. There is three. There is four. And what happened in that moment? What I need to tell somebody this morning is that when you get into the fire of life and you can't see your left from your right, when melancholy and sadness and difficulty and challenge comes upon you, you think you're going in there all by yourself. But I'm preaching to some people this morning, I know, I know if you'll get with me, who met God in the fire. You didn't meet God on the good day. You didn't meet God in the high moment of life. You can testify today that you met God when life threatened to overtake your life. They put three in there there but they counted four in there and they brought three out of there what happened to the fourth one he stayed in the fire so that every future fire you get into there is a fourth one in there the fourth one that come out of the fire the fourth one preserves you in the fire he is the God who is almighty this is our God this is our God he is faithful to the uttermost they're counting maybe y'all didn't get it this morning Y'all get it this morning? Come on over here, Daniel. Come on over here, Daniel. Come help me preach my sermon. Daniel, what happened to you? Oh, 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 I was thrown into a lion's den. You were thrown into a lion's den? Yeah, I was thrown into a lion. You were thrown into a lion's den. Yeah, I was. Well, tell me how that, well, I got to tell you, the night I was thrown into the lion's den, they closed the door on me, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, an angel showed up in the middle of the night, and he said, Daniel, don't you worry. I'm going to shut the mouth of those lions, and you're going to sleep with sweet peace tonight. You're going to sleep with sweet rest tonight. Don't you, don't you know that I'm able to keep you? And let me tell you something he says to Daniel listen the next morning they come to ask where he's at and he responds listen don't you worry don't you fret don't you have anxiety our God my God is able to keep me and the same God that kept Shadrach Meshach and Abednego and the same God that kept Daniel and the same God that marched with Joshua around those walls is the same God who's able to keep you time and time again he's the same God who's able to keep you in the midst of a divorce he's the same God that can keep you when your money gets low 
He's the same God that can keep you when you feel like you're losing your mind. He's the same God when you can keep you when you're in the midst of transition. He is the same God who kept Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he can keep you in that classroom, teacher. He is able. He is the same sustaining one. Lastly, I want to tell you, and then I'm going to get out of your way. I want to tell you, you and I, here's the second reason, get sad when we imagine divine abandonment. And you say, Craig, that's like point number one. Oh, the subtlety is clear. When you feel like all the world's rejected you, and then God rejects you, look at Psalm 42, verse 6 and 7 again. He says in verse 6, My soul was in despair within me, therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls unto deep at the sound of your waterfalls. For all your breakers and your waves passed over me. Jump down to verse 9. He said, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Church, listen. See, it's one thing to feel like God is absent. It's another thing to feel like God is there, but he's abandoned you. And this distinction is not so subtle. When you talk to counselors, now I'm, not a, I'm a pastoral counselor, but I'm not a state certified therapist. You understand this. There is a very complex trauma that many people, especially in America, children, these children experience growing up. It's the feeling of being abandoned by their parents. And I'm not just talking about your parents leaving you. Sometimes your parents can abandon you while they're sitting right there in front of you. It's called negligence. The opposite of love is not hate, it's negligence. And so they get this feeling of abandonment. And what happens is, some of you, even in your own heart, have had that trauma. And you don't trust anyone. And so at the first sign someone is hurting you, you withdraw. Listen, when you prefer isolation over connection, something's happened to you. Something's taken place in your soul, in your heart. And I just want to go ahead and tell and set the standards straight. None of us, hear me, none of us make it into adulthood without some kind of trauma. I don't care if you have perfect, how perfect your parents were, how awesome your parents were. There ain't none of us that make it to the point in adulthood without seeing some kind of trauma. And some kids, listen, are so abandoned, and some kids are more abandoned than other kids. And they develop mental challenges, and other things give way to other uh, issues in their psyche later on in life. Some, someone didn't look out for them. Someone abandoned them, and now they feel they got to fend for themselves. We know these people, right? These people say, I don't need your help. I can do it all by myself. Right? Can I tell you something? That's a lie. You can't do it all yourself. You can't do life by yourself. And abandoned issues are real. Are they not, church? What happens when it's not just an earthly mom or a daddy that abandons you? What happens when you feel like God abandons you? Friends, that happens. At some point, it grabs all of us by the throat. And when you feel like someone else has it better than you and you're constantly looking at their path, when what you have doesn't seem to measure up with your hard work so far, doesn't measure, measure up to the input you've put in it, Lord, I've been faithful to you. This is a worship leader. This is a son of Korah. 
I know what it's like to pray, God. I've already led other people into your presence. Why have you forgotten me? He said, my soul, my soul, my whole. It's another way in Hebrew of saying my whole person. He said, my mind and my psyche is bent over. He said, it's oppressed. I'm oppressed by sadness. And he said, right now, I'm too sad to even sing. I don't know if any of you have ever been there before. I've been there before where I've walked in this sanctuary, but my mind is somewhere else. I know because I preach to people, you're looking at me, but I don't know if you're really looking at me. Your mind is somewhere else. You're bound by some kind of situation or some kind of complex trauma, and you know that as soon as you leave here, something else is waiting on you. So you, even in this message, have gotten a little bit of faith already stirring your heart about what I'm preaching to you, but you're already getting assaulted about what you're going to face when you leave through those doors and what's going to happen again when you get out of here and you go back to that relationship and you get back in that job and listen listen I read this text and I didn't know if this question was a question of interrogation I didn't know when the psalmist said my soul is bent over where are you God or why have you forgotten me I didn't know if it was a if it was a question of interrogate I never studied this psalm this way is it God why is it this way what's wrong what's the case listen this is not an investigation or an inquiry by the psalmist he's not talking about hey I wonder why no this psalmist is turning his attention and he He's starting to say strange stuff. He says, I remember you from the land of the Jordan. He says, I remember you from the peaks of Hermon. In other words, he said, listen, when I feel downcast in my soul, he said, I remember God that you are over this land and you gave this land to our people. And I went to back to Mount Hermon, which is the highest peak in the promised land. And I got up on that and I discovered that I remembered the only reason we are here in the first place is because you gave us this land. The only reason we're here in the first place is because a man named John Joshua had the audacity to believe what you told him to, tell, to do. And he crossed that Jordan River and he marched around that city seven times. And listen, even though I don't feel good right now, historically I have stepped into somewhere else where I have come to remember that you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we have a testimony too, folks. We have a testimony. We have it better than our ancestors. Can we just agree with that? And even though it ain't right in our world right now, we got it a whole lot better even than a hundred years ago. No, the world world's not perfect, but if we can worship God right now, listen, if they can worship God without air conditioning, if they can worship God out on a plane, if they can worship God when they don't have food for their babies, if they can worship God when they didn't have indoor plumbing in their house, if they can worship God when they didn't have money for a mortgage, you and I can worship God too. We can remember the faithfulness of our God as the deer pants for streams of living water. And then he goes on and says something amazing. He said, deep calls unto deep. See, he started the psalm with water. The deer pants for it, but that's safe water. Deep calls unto deep. He's imagining the Jordan River that cascades out into a waterfall. This is deep, unsafe water. This is dangerous water. This is the water that can drown you. Because listen, church, the same water that can bless you can blast you. And he says, the same water that I needed is now can hurt me. That's why the God, C.S. Lewis said in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he said, God is not safe. Aslan's, he's loving, but he's not safe. Yeah, he'll bless you, but he has enough power to take you out. Basically, the psalmist is saying, I don't know how to say it any better. God, save me from God. That's what Psalm 42 is. God, save me from God. Deep calls unto deep. Save me from, I, I know I've been wrong. Oh, Lord, keep me from you. 
Y'all think I'm making that up, don't you? What do you think the cross of Calvary is? It is God talking to God about our problem. It is God conferring with God. Jesus went to Calvary to save a wretch like you and me. It's only the love of God that could keep the wrath of God from destroying the people of God. And Jesus comes and pays the price. And he said, I recall your salvation. I recall. So Craig, what is, not, not why, not what is wrong. It means when I recall your goodness, why am I sad? Why am I sad? Listen, church, we can't allow the sadness we feel now to snatch our memory of God's goodness to us in the past. He said, why are you in despair, hope in God? Look at me, church. The, the, the remedy the psalmist uses for this melancholy is this. After all I've been through, I never lost my praise. I've never lost my worship. Listen, church, I know many of you may not know this. You can actually praise your way through some stuff. You, you, you can actually do that. God has given you the ability to praise. Listen, you can actually shout hallelujah until you feel better. God has given you the capacity to make confession until hope springs up in your heart again. You can actually remember God long enough until God jumps in your heart again. I don't know about you. But I've had moments where I felt so bad. I said, God, I don't feel like praising you, but I'm going to keep on praising you. When I think about the goodness of my God, God, my soul hopes in you. Let me give you real quick, come on team, seven reasons why you ought to praise God every day. They're going to show you. I just put these on my own time this week. You can praise God because he redeemed you. You can praise God because he promised you a home. You can praise God because he loves you forever. You can... Praise God every day because he gives you faith. You can praise God because you get, he gives you his word. He can, you can praise God no matter your circumstance because he provides for your needs. And you can praise God because he has secured your joy. I've been talking to a lot of people that don't feel anchored in their soul. So I just went into my notes section of my phone and I put seven reasons that I'm anchored in Jesus this year. And when I've been meeting with people in counseling, I just send them this. Next slide. I just send them seven reasons, seven things that are anchored in my soul. Every day I can remember God is still sovereign. He is still faithful and he's still in charge. Christ is still reigning no matter what's coming in my life, no matter what's happening in the nation I'm a part of. The spirit is still interceding for folks and still interceding for me. The church is still essential. It's always going to be essential. Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against him. Satan is still deceiving and I've never been more mad. I've never had more righteous anger than I have right now at the deception of the enemy on people that I deeply love. The gospel still saving people. Those who trust in the name of the Lord shall run to him and they are safe and glory still coming and there's nobody that can snatch that glory away. So right in the midst of whatever your melancholy the psalmist said you need to recall the goodness of God and if you'll recall the goodness of God what I want to do for you this morning as we take of the Lord's Supper I want you to put your memory to action for a moment and I'm going to ask you to stand up and I'm going to lead you in something this morning church it may, it may be different for some of you I want your memory muscle to start and I want you just to think of the last three or four years and I want you with your mouth to start thanking God for ways he's kept you I want you to start thanking God 
for ways he saved you and redeemed your soul. I want you to start thanking God for ways that he has saw fit to call your family into his kingdom. Uh, some of you, you watched your sons and daughters stand on an altar and get married to a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman. And God answered your prayers from 10, 12, 15 years. Some of you, you didn't know how you're going to get through the transition of the last job to this job. And you're going to be led in an exercise this morning to get your muscle memory back in action again and make confession that God, when I recall all of your goodness, why are you downcast, oh my soul? Hope in God. He is God who is almighty. I want to invite you across this room. Would you stand with me? They're going to bring the elements of communion forward, but listen to me, church. A few years ago, an older Christian had more peace than me about a very hard situation. And I went to that older Christian. I'll never forget this. I said to that older Christian, I said, man, the reality is you have more faith than me. And he looked at me and he said, no, I do not. He said, I have more experience with a faithful God than you. I'll never forget that. That no matter what come my way, when I recall the goodness of God, God gives voice to sing again. So church, right now, maybe you can join me for the next few moments. As we are about to come take the Lord's Supper. I want you just to right now, maybe if you feel comfortable to lift your hands, but I want you to close your eyes, to focus for a moment. Don't be looking around. And I want you to join with me in confessing. Just think of the last three or four years and just begin to confess the goodness of God, God's faithfulness to you, that whatever He's done for you, to put the memory to work and say, God, I remember where I used to be. I remember how this is what I used to look like. This is the sins I used to be involved in. And Lord, you rescued me. Lord, you brought me out of the miry clay. You set my feet upon the solid foundation. Come on, just put your memory to work for the next few moments. And let's just make confession. The psalmist declared, even Joshua and the, the people of God had to shout. They shouted on that seventh time and seventh day. And the walls came falling down. Come on, just let the Spirit of the living God, the presence of Almighty God, stir your heart. Stir your affection again. When you remember the goodness of God, when I recall all of your goodness, God... I say unto my soul, why are you downcast, O oh, my soul? Put your hope in God, your faith in God. Maybe you feel free this morning to lift your hands. I want you just now to let that memory turn into a, a response of praise, a response of worship. Come on, just for the next few moments. God, we thank you that, Lord, while we were yet faithless, you were faithful to us. I thank you for your sustaining ability, God, your sustaining power, God, in the midst of every moment that felt like I was going to drown and not make it through God Lord when there was a not a glimmer of hope in that midst of transition God you are a God who saw fit to preserve my life God and I thank you I thank you Lord when I recall all of your goodness to me and my family saving my family rescuing my parents Lord, setting my family on the solid foundation of your love, I can't help but praise you, God. I can't help but to bring you honor and glory, God. When I think about the, the, the destruction that my life was headed for, when I think about, Lord, the bad decisions that I had made, when I think about the consequences, when I think about the people I used to run with and how they're in jail today, they're in the penitentiary today, they're, they, they've killed 
people today. Their life is spiraled out of control today. I can't help but remember how you rescued me, God. How you brought me out of those situations. Some of you right now, you, you don't even remember because you were a kid and you were out in the street playing and God preserved you in ways you don't even realize. God kept you in ways you don't realize. And God says, the psalmist said, listen, when I recall of the goodness of God, I say, put my hope in God. Put my hope in God. Today you can overcome sadness, friend. Today you can overcome melancholy. You can sing again. You can sing again. You can sing again. Say, Craig, well, maybe I'm not singing by the end of this message. You keep on rehearsing what the psalmist said. Lord, you are the God who is almighty. There is nothing too difficult for you. There's nothing too difficult. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.